Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to our Monday show, which we call The Scramble and which is living up to its name. Um, we're going to talk in the first segment uh, about Nepal. I think the eyes of the world uh, are on the country of Nepal. Uh, later in the show today, we'll talk about reactions to the rather light sentencing of General David Petraeus, particularly among defendants who have been sentenced for comparable crimes. In other words, there are a lot of people either facing or already living uh, long prison sentences uh, for leaking government documents, for mishandling government documents. Uh, why did uh, They're wondering why, and sometimes they're wondering in the form of court filings, why uh, General Petraeus got such a light sentence. And then at the end, uh, maybe on a slightly lighter note, um, although philosophy, of course, is, takes many forms, but the uh, uh, a group of 62 philosophers met in kind of a almost rock concert format in New York City this weekend, uh, a night of philosophy that lasted for 12 hours. Uh, we're going to talk to one of the people who participated in that. But as I say, first, we're going to talk to a series of people who um, are experiencing the tragedy in Nepal in a very direct way. We're going to start uh, with Arjun Dahal, who's treasurer of the Nepalese Association of Connecticut. Welcome to our show. I'm sorry it's under such sad circumstances. Thank you very much. Um Maybe you can first of all tell us a, a little bit about the folks back home. Um, you have family members who were directly affected by this earthquake. Uh, tell us what you know about what has happened. Uh, right, uh, that was uh, actually Saturday night from uh, in America. Uh, I got called from there. Um, there was a big earthquake, seven point nine Rectory Square, and uh, we tried to connect uh, to our family. Um, it was hard to connect with them because the phone line was down. And uh, nobody um, uh, were directly connected. And uh, I try a different way. I talk to my friends, society is a Facebook or social media. Uh, my parents, I got find out they were good. And, but later on, I found out my sister was uh, trapped. Uh, the, the house fell down where she was living. And um, there were like 40 people in their house. Uh, out of them, um, the three of them, my family, like my sister, uh, son and uh, brother-in-law and uh, their daughter were trapped. And in the meantime, the other people around their area, they helped them out. And uh, they came out um, to the hospital. Uh, right now, they're in a better situation. Um, that's good to hear uh, about the better situation. It, it it must have been an incredibly anxious time. And I know that members uh, of the Nepalese community here in Connecticut met uh, for a vigil, right? They met for a vigil in West Hartford Center outside ta- Town Hall. Is that correct? Uh, oh, I, I, members of the Nepalese community in Connecticut um, had some kind of vigil or, or candlelight meeting outside the Town Hall in West Hartford? Yeah, we did it yesterday. Um, uh, uh, we had nothing else to do. We tried to um, collect some money and uh, all those things. So before that, a lot of our friends and our families, um, they uh, lost their life because of this um, tragedy. And uh, we decided to do that uh, candlelight um, visual yesterday. And about 200 people were there. If we give them more notice, there are going to be more people, but we decided that, Later up the day yesterday, so there was about 200 people 
and uh, we pray to the God, um, please um, uh, uh, whoever wounded or injured, um, try to save their life, and um, uh, whoever lost their life, and uh, rest in peace. That's all we could do right now from uh, far from Nepal. I know there are many people um, who want to help. Is there a particular place that you know of now that people should send donations or uh, other forms of relief? Uh, we really need uh, help right now. Um, I was just talking a few hours ago with my friends in Nepal. Uh, but we are more attention in our capital area, Kathmandu, but uh, there are a lot of remote areas. We didn't even pay attention much because there's uh, all phone lines are down. Uh, there's not too much like internet. So we don't even know too much So what is going on. We just got to find out how uh, bad the situation in a remote area. So we really need help right now. Uh, all different kind of help, uh, volunteers, and um, uh, even just like water. There's uh, lack of water right now. Uh, Fours, and um, later on we can tell that there's all kind of diseases going to come up. Uh, so far, um, just now I was watching um, one of my friends' uh, Facebook uh, status. There's only one uh, uh, district got about 30 uh, 3,000 people die so far. That's what they are saying. So we don't know how bad the situation is. Especially in Connecticut, um, uh, we are we, uh, in the uh, Brentford area, New Haven area, and the West Hartford area. We got a um, uh, group of people collecting money, especially uh, Nepalese Association of Connecticut. Uh, um, they started already. I, I'm treasured myself. Uh, so uh, we are collecting money from uh, all different kind of uh, people, group of people, Whoever want to donate, uh, they can go out our, our website, cpnepali.org. Uh, we set up a PayPal account, and they can uh, donate through the PayPal. And uh, if they want to connect, uh, contact the people, we have their phone numbers and everything else. Uh, if they visit cpnepali.org, and uh, um, they will find out more about it. All right. Uh, Arjun Dahal, thank you so much. We're going to post a link uh, to your site on our website, so people who want to uh, learn more can go to wnpr.org slash Colin. That's the easiest way to get our show pages to come up, and we'll have a link uh, to his organization for people who want to know how to help and how to help specifically through the Connecticut Nepali organization. We're just got, we're going to keep moving here. We have a number of people who have different stories and reports to share with us. Now we're talking to Roman Shrestha, uh, a student at the University of Connecticut. Uh, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And you are here from Nepal with your wife. Do I have that correct? Uh, exactly right. And and so, how long ago did you leave Nepal? So that was uh, eight years ago. I was in Texas for, for my undergrad, and then I moved to Connecticut for the grad school. So this must be a very difficult time for you. What have you been able to find out about what's happening back home? So I recently talked to my parents this morning. Uh, they said all my immediate family members are doing okay. Uh, it's just that I, I happen to lost a couple of my distant relatives and also a um, couple of my neighbors. So um, and my wife's family there in the village. So and as Arjun highlighted earlier, most of the rescue efforts they have been you know centralized just in the capital city. So it's really hard for people outside the capital city to, you know, get help, be rescued, you know, get medicine, uh, tents, and all those, those sort of things. Um, one of the things that I've been reading is that um, people in Nepal were aware of the potential for an, for an earthquake. Is that true? I mean, growing up in Nepal, was that something that you grew up being a little bit concerned about, that there was potential for a serious earthquake there? Right. I 
you know, it's been in the news every now and then, you know, they, they call it a big one, so they're expecting, you know, of course, no one can really predict when it's going to come, but people knew, and even the government and the, and the researcher, the scientists who have been working on the same same field, they knew about it, but, you know, exact, but they didn't know when it was coming, so I think I would I would say that there was a lack of uh, preventive preventive measures that was not in place earlier, so that has led to the huge uh, disaster after the uh, after the earthquake. Um, a- a- Nepal, Nepal has been through more than a decade, really, of pretty complicated political and, and government instability and, and changes in the constituent assembly and changes in leadership. Um, is there a concern that that's going to make it hard to organize a recovery effort? Is is your sense of the government back home, is it now strong and solidified enough so that it can it can kind of take the lead in a recovery a- effort? Uh I have some doubt in terms of how that's going to all the rescue efforts going to be handled because I was reading a news this morning saying that you know there are so many um, so many helping hands so many people offering the help and you know people from different parts of the world and you know, even the government they are sending all these things but most of the things are just lying in the airport you know there are no people no people to guide them through to you know where they should go where they should distribute the all these um um resources so i don't know how true that is because i can't really really verify but the way i'm seeing on the facebook and other media uh, i think that's what's happening so there's really a lack of government support in terms of how they can guide all the all the things to the right place especially to the rural part of the areas where you know it's most hard hit Right. Uh, Roman Shrista, what's one thing that you would want people in the United States to know about your home, uh, about the people of Nepal? What's, you've got some radio airtime right now. What's one thing you, you want people to know about the place you come from? I mean, the first thing, you know, every time I have to tell, you know, for people who don't know Nepal, it's the land of, you know, where the Mount Everest is. And, uh in terms of, you, so you want me to tell about before earthquake or after aftermath? Well, maybe uh, maybe just even what the people are like there. What would be meaningful to them at a time like this? Uh, especially at this time, I, I'm overwhelmed by the support that all these people have. You know, everyone's affected. No one's in, you know, um, intact. So one thing I'm really seeing after this event is that, you know, everyone is coming forward to help them. Even the industries, you know, non-profit organizations, schools, and all these uh, people—they're coming forward, helping people. Um, you can see on the on the different websites and the you know social networking sites, everyone's posting their numbers to see, you know, if they can how they can help. And the other thing I saw was that there's a list going being circulated around the around the world, you know, and even within the country that who can donate blood or, you know, uh, supply resources to the people. So that's one of the best part, I think, which I've seen in terms of coming um, collectively and helping people who are in, in great need. 
All right, Roman Shrista, thank you so much for joining us, uh, a student at the University of Connecticut at UConn, and uh, our the last person in this kind of round robin we're doing here uh, is Timothy Dansdell, an associate professor of English at Quinnipiac University. Uh, I understand you had sort of a mentee uh, uh, from Nepal whom you went there to visit. Tell tell us about that trip. Yes, hi, Colin. Hi. Uh, yes, um, Bigyan Dahal, uh, a student at Quinnipiac in science. Uh, three years ago, I just happened to meet him independently and was immediately impressed by his focus, his discipline. And then as we, we got to know one another, I, I never had him as a student, but I was just, just taken with with his general character. And then it turned out my, my wife, who is a professor at Wesleyan, got a Fulbright uh, uh, to visit Kathmandu and teach uh, doc- in the doctor's program at Kathmandu Hospital. And so... We went over there, uh, I went over there with our daughters, um, really, uh, two years ago, this month, and uh, we were tourists, et cetera, um, but we also visited Vigyan's uh, family uh, in Tamal, which is uh, part of Kathmandu, and I just have to say, I, I spent an hour on the phone with Vigyan with uh, yesterday. He's, he's a student at Brown. He, want, he wants to become a doctor, but now he thinks he... Because of what's happened, he'll stop at the master's level and then try to get an MBA, try to get American citizenship, and then go back and help his country. Because as he said, this is going to take a decade just to get Nepal back to the sort of semi-stable third world state that it, that it was. I will also say that the, the, the number of photos that we took of uh, Budhanath, the, the sacred temple, the museums, Durbar Square in Kathmandu, um, uh, you know, all those places are now destroyed, uh, and uh, it's just it's just very, very poignant and shocking t- to look at those photos uh, and and now see, according, uh, you know, just going on the web or looking at the news or listening to uh, Bigyan, uh, you know, his his family is sleeping on the street and will be there for quite some time. Yeah, it is just shocking to think uh, about some of these also these incredibly old and obviously irreplaceable uh, things that are just gone now. Um, and and when you first heard the words earthquake in Nepal, did did a certain image come to mind? In other words, one of the things that is just clear from even looking at pictures of Kathmandu is uh, a, a lot of these wooden structures all kind of pushed together uh, pretty closely. I mean, the, just I would assume the notion uh, of uh, any earthquake in, in Kathmandu and, and its outlying areas would be a little bit chilling to somebody who's been there. Yes. I, In fact, I had an interview with uh, Connecticut uh, Three just about an hour ago, and they asked for me to send some photos uh, of the places that I had been. And, and you're absolutely right, Colin. Uh, it's packed in. They're, they're really just these most beautiful, colorful Warrens wood structures. Uh, you walk anywhere in the streets of Kathmandu, and it is alive with color and people and markets. And I, I sent several of those today, uh, but uh, just based on inf- Inferring from news reports and such, those are those are all matchsticks now, and those are you know several hundred years old. Never mind all the intricate stone and wood, but mostly wood carvings. The, sac- the sacred iconography of the museums, uh, you know, uh, matchsticks. Um, but then when you go outside of Kathmandu and go to Pokhara, which was also part of the epicenter, when you, when you are on uh, the roads t- to get out there, which are 
dangerous in themselves, even in good times. And 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 rubble is often falling and sliding off the off the hills. Uh, for 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 Nepalis, for us, these would be mountains. For them, they're hills just to travel outside of Kathmandu. And now, uh, passing many of those villages, really just perched on hillsides. I mean, those those of all they're all gone, just slid into the rivers, slid into the canyons. It's okay. just shocking to imagine having been there and walked through them uh, myself. I, 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 I want to go back, but, you know, the best thing to do for, for all of us is to give to AmeriCare or Red Cross and, and uh, see what can be done to help this country. Yeah, we are posting information about uh, how to help with relief efforts up on our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Timothy Dansdill, Associate Professor of English at Quinnipiac University. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to switch tracks Uh, We're going to talk about the sentencing of David Petraeus and the ripple effects that has on other cases. All right. Uh, We learned last week that retired general and former CIA director David Petraeus uh, had been sentenced or uh, actually accepted a plea deal uh, of two years probation and a $100,000 fine. Uh, for leaking classified information to Paula Broadwell, who was A, his biographer, and B, his mistress. There are a lot of other cases around right now that involve the leaking of documents, the mishandling of documents. Some of them are very well known, like the case of Chelsea Manning. Uh, Others, uh, you have to pay a little bit more attention uh, to names like Kiriakou and Sterling and Kim. Uh, One of the people who really does pay a lot of attention to these cases uh, is Peter Moss, who's senior editor and reporter at The Intercept. And he's been writing about the ripple effect that the Petraeus deal, this relatively lenient deal has had on a whole series of other cases where the crime is comparable uh, or the alleged offense is comparable, but the sentence is a much more stiff. Uh, so first of all, Peter Moss, welcome to our show. Great to be with you. So um, of the cases that you've covered a lot, and this really, uh, you've written a lot in particular about Stephen King, Kim, is there one that kind of leaps out at you as having this sort of extreme jarring disparity between the way that General Petraeus's sentence is being handled and the way that some other defend- defendant has been handled? Well, I would say that holds true probably for the, the three cases that you mentioned, the John Kiriakou case, the Stephen Kim case as well as the Jeffrey Sterling case. I guess the one in particular that might be the most jarring is John Kiriakou, who is a former CIA agent, who uh, in the end pled guilty to having disclosed the name of an undercover CIA agent to a reporter. That name was not published, and nonetheless, Kiriakou went to jail for 30 months. In Petraeus's case, he leaked a lot more than just one name to somebody. He leaked a number of names, uh, war plans, uh, discussions that he had with President Obama, um, and then he lied to the FBI about it. So, and, and one of the reasons that Petraeus was given this lenient sentence, the government said, is because there was no damage caused. Nothing was published. Well, nothing was published as a result of John Kiriakou's much smaller leak, but nonetheless, he got 30 months in jail, whereas Petraeus got two years probation no jail time at all. Well, I suppose that would be the most glaring discrepancy, but it's uh, a, a distinction that's probably not doing you know, justice to the other two injustices of, of Stephen Kim and Jeffrey Sterling, um, who, whose cases are different from Petraeus's, lesser in some ways, perhaps more grave in other ways. Um, but Kim has been in jail, and Sterling appears to be going to jail. 
not neither one of them getting the treatment that Petraeus got. Well, let's go uh, through uh, some of these in a little bit more de- detail. But as long as we're on Kiriakou for a second, there's some things that make him, to me, really different. One of them is most of what he did, he did out in plain sight, right? He actually, and he did it with the mission, really, he thought, of rehabilitating the CIA's reputation vis-a-vis uh, extreme methods of interrogation. He thought the story had been told the wrong way. And yes, there had been waterboarding. But yes, also, as far as he was concerned, it, it had had some intelligence value. People weren't understanding that. So he's kind of pleading the agency's case for the most part in public with his name attached to what he did. Um, so it wasn't for the most part like some, I mean, we talk about leaking. We usually think so, about something that's done surreptitiously. And maybe they got him on one that was a, a little less public. But it wasn't as though nobody knew he was he, he was out there talking about this stuff. Well, at the beginning, Kiriakou was out there talking about it and was one of the first CIA officers to talk about it publicly in a way that supported the government's line. It was kind of subsequently that um, he began talking about it a little bit more confidentially and in a fashion that he and his lawyers uh, regard as whistleblowing, that in fact what he was eventually trying to do was to show that actually things had gotten a bit out of control with the CIA's torture program. So another difference that you could say between Petraeus and um, uh, Kiriakou is that Petraeus leaked for whatever the reasons are to impress his biographer, uh, whatever, um, whereas Kiriakou was leaking because he was trying to blow the whistle on an illegal government program. Right. And when you, you know, punish that um, and let somebody else walk for uh, leaking for for reasons that have nothing to do with uh, national security in terms of trying to make it better, more secure, uh, because programs are going awry, then you've got a a real, not just a double standard, but a really very troubling one. Right. I mean, one of the messages that runs through a lot of these cases, as opposed to, as compared to Petraeus, is uh, if you're going to leak something, do it for cynical, a cynical reason, not an idealistic one. Uh, Because if you're trying to make the world a better place by doing what you're doing, you're going to get punished more severely. Um, I do want to talk about Stephen Kim because I keep trying to say Stephen King. I don't know why that is. But I keep... uh, uh, He's better well known. That's that's, that's for sure. It could be. But, you know, back to something that you mentioned earlier on about the question of little or no damage in the Petraeus case. Well, with Stephen Kim, the way I understand it, he leaked a piece of information to the press that was, I think, subsequently described as a nothing burger, right? Exactly. One of the government officials who was interviewed by the FBI said in the interview that this was a nothing burger of a of a document um, that caused no damage. And it was a really interesting thing because, again, the prosecution said in deciding to give David Petraeus lenient treatment that he had caused no harm, mm-hmm. that his leaks had caused no harm, nothing had been published. It was very interesting in the case of Stephen Kim that the government actually stood in the way of the defense trying to argue that because Stephen Kim did no harm, he should not be prosecuted. The government in the Stephen Kim case said whether or not harm was done is immaterial. It's the leaking of the information that is the problem. So you kind of right there, right at that point, have a really weird double standard where in one case the government says no harm was done, so we can just slap them on the wrist. In the other case, Stephen Kim's case, the government says it doesn't matter that no harm was done. It's still a leak, and we have to do something about it. I, I would say that, you know, in, in fairness to the government, the government said harm was done in Stephen Kim's case, but the government would not and stood in the way of that question actually being adjudicated at trial. 
Some of and this in the end, there was a plea agreement, and so there there, there was no adjudication of that mm-hmm. question at trial. Though everything indicates that harm wasn't done, and uh, I haven't seen anybody point to any harm that was done as a result of that. In in a, in a case like Kim's, some of it also seems to be timing and context, right? I mean, so just to sort of set the stage for this, he was, I think, talking on the phone to a reporter. They hung up the phone. They went outside. They talked outside. They came back in. They talked on the phone. Uh, again, um, even in the case of it being a nothing burger, it happened right at a time when the Obama administration was really eager to crack down on leaks, on whistleblowers, uh, very eager to tighten that kind of security up. And and they were able, just maybe partly through the behavior pattern here of going on the phone and then, then outside and then on the phone, to begin to home in on him. So does some of this, is some of it just sort of bad timing? Stephen Kim's not doing anything all that interesting, but he's just doing it at the wrong time. That was definitely part of it. I mean, in early 2010, there was a review conducted in the Justice Department of the number of leak uh, investigations that ended up with uh, indictments. And and Denny Blair, who was at the time kind of in charge of, of overseeing this, he was on the intelligence uh, national security side. Uh, when he got the results, it showed that actually there had been these investigations open, but nobody or practically nobody had ever been indicted in the previous years. Uh, he was quoted later on in New York Times story as saying that, you know, we decided, okay, we've got to make an example of somebody. We need to hang an admiral. Uh, he was from the Navy, and that's, that's what the people say in the Navy when an example must be made. And that is exactly when Stephen Kim's case came along when the Department of Justice opened its investigation and when the investigation of Stephen Kim really got into high gear. So it was a, a, a nothing burger of a leak, which in other times would have uh, probably not led to anything. But because the government, the Department of Justice, uh, was looking to make an example of somebody, Stephen Kim was very easy. He was a mid-level official. It wasn't like David Petraeus, where there are a lot of people who would defend him and where you, know, you have to deal politically with repercussions of, of, of putting a, a general in jail, perhaps. Um, so they went ahead with that. And, you know, the, the shocking thing there is that Stephen Kim only he talked about one report, uh, one classified report with a, a journalist from Fox News, uh, James Rosen, talked about one report. Petraeus handed over notebooks full of classified reports, covert operatives names. So, you know, when you talk about disparities, there's a huge disparity there. It was a discussion that Stephen Kim had about one report, whereas General Petraeus handed over notebooks full of highly classified uh, information. Uh, yet, you know, the outcomes, of course, are very different. General Petraeus is a free man, and Stephen Kim is still in jail. Um, I want to come back to Petraeus in just a second, but I also want to focus just a little bit on the, the climate in which so many of these cases uh, occur. We haven't talked about Jeffrey Sterling yet, but it, it's sort of part of all this. And um, uh, one of your colleagues, Stephen Cole, wrote, uh, these prosecutions are all the more remarkable because apart from jaywalking and pot smoking, not many crimes in the U.S. are committed more routinely than, to, than the disclosing of classified information to journalists by government officials. Making the point that there's just a huge amount of classified material, 92 million documents in in the year 2011. You know, I'm sure East Germany under Stasi didn't have 92 million classified documents in a year. I mean, it's the it's the attitude of a highly secretive government or at least a government that if it's a toss up or if it involves any thought whatsoever, sure, let's just classify it. And so it seems as though what you have are a lot of government employees who 
you know, they're not, some of them are whistleblowers, but some of them are just sort of people thinking, well, there just needs to be a little bit more flow of this information, which essentially belongs to the public, belongs in the public sphere. It's hard to talk about things if 92 million documents are, are, are classified. So just people kind of trying to loosen some of these knots a tiny bit. It, it seems like that's how you get into trouble is you, you happen to be the one person out of thousands, apparently, who gets caught doing that. This is kind of one of the the most problematic aspects of this this whole crackdown is, you know, this crackdown is really not about trying to stop government officials from leaking information that is going to legitimately harm national security. Okay, it's, it, it is in part about that. But what it really is about is to get government officials to stop talking to journalists without authorization on subjects or saying things that would be embarrassing to the government. It really, you know, part of it might be about genuine national security concerns. Uh, A great part of it is just about the inconvenience of having government officials talking to journalists and saying things that are embarrassing to the government, and the government doesn't want this to happen anymore. And so when you have just a few, you know, cases of people who really didn't do anything terribly wrong, Kiriakou and, and, and Kim and, uh, and Sterling probably belong all together in that, yet you hang them in the, in the sense of uh, the Navy's uh, example making. It sends a message out to absolutely everybody, which is an intentional men- message on the government's part, I think, which is do not talk to journalists about anything that might be the least bit controversial. And what that means is that not just journalists, but the people that you know we write stories or broadcast stories for uh, are deprived of, of a real understanding of what's going on in the government other than what the government says in press releases and at press conferences. And, and democracy is uh, all the worse off for a situation like that, I think. Um, in that context, there is a difference between Petraeus uh, and some of these other cases. I mean, he wasn't really talking to a journalist and he wasn't doing it for the purpose of kind of conducting government business vis-a-vis journalism and, you know, just getting a few things out there that, once again, might not even amount to whistleblowing, but just sort of the free flow of information that you need to be able to have these kinds of discussions. He was he had these black books, these black notebooks that he'd collected, and he wanted his uh, girlfriend slash biographer to look at them uh, in a way. He he doesn't fall within the kind of dragnet and the kind of message sending that you're describing. This is a prosecution that I think, you know, the White House and certain officials in the Department of Justice probably did not want to have happen. Um, you know, but the fact is that this was brought to the FBI's attention. And then, you know, once it's brought to the FBI's attention, because there has been so much activity on pursuing leaks and leakers, I think within the FBI and then within the Department of Justice, they felt obligated to kind of, you know, follow the trail. And, you know, the trail led to uh, it being discovered that Petraeus had leaked all of this information. And, you know, I don't think this was a a prosecution that people in high levels of the Department of Justice or at the White House House wanted to happen, but um, it, it had to happen given all the other prosecutions that they had initiated. We're talking to Peter Moss from The Intercept. So one of the things that you've written about is that in virtually every one of these cases, um, the lawyers for these defendants, or in some cases inmates, uh, have risen to the occasion and, and, and written letters. And Sterling is in the process of going through sentencing right now. Uh, the others uh, have already been. Uh, and But raising this question, how can this disparity exist? How can my client be doing X number of years facing this amount of time uh, if Petraeus is walking out with a suspended sentence? Is this going to do anybody any good? Is it going to are any of these defendants likely to benefit from that kind of of protest? 
Well, so far, there hasn't been any apparent benefit from it. Uh, really, two days after the Petraeus uh, uh, plea deal was announced, I mean, he was sentenced on uh, Thursday, I think it was, but it was about a month ago that the deal was announced. Uh, Stephen Kim's lawyers wrote a letter to Department of Justice asking that their client be freed immediately because their client had done significantly less than Petraeus, yet Petraeus was not getting a jail sentence. And Stephen Kim was not released, and as far as I know, there wasn't even any response from the De Department of Justice to that letter. Uh, Sterling's lawyers, and Sterling is going to be sentenced on May 11th, have indeed asked for leniency in light of what the sentence was for Petraeus. Whether or not the court will take that into consideration, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that uh, Sterling's lawyers have, have focused on in their uh, filings to the court is that although sentencing guidelines call for 19 to 24 years uh, in jail for him on the charges that he was convicted on by a jury, uh, because Kim spent or had a 13-month sentence, and Kiriakou had a 30-month sentence, and Petraeus had no time in jail, that uh, therefore Sterling should have uh, a sentence that's in keeping at least with those and not being as high as 19 years. We'll see on May 11th whether that uh, is actually the case. All right. Uh, Peter Moss from The Intercept, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. Thank you. And there's, there is kind of an irony there, too, that you know, the higher ranking you are, the larger the trust that you betrayed the later your sentence is, apparently. So if you're going to do something bad and get caught at it, try to be a general first. Um, I want to just quickly, I've got uh, just a few seconds here. I want to mention something that's coming up uh, for me next week, and I wanted you to know about it, and they wanted you wanted me to tell you about it. Uh, Family Reentry, a nonprofit organization in Bridgeport, uh, has programs in, uh, called Breaking the Cycle of Incarceration. Uh, they, they're presenting Danny Glover, the actor, uh, at the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport on May 6, starting at 7 p.m. Uh, this is a, an evening talking about the problem of mass incarceration and racial disparity in our prison systems. Uh, I'm also going to be moderating a panel that includes uh, Charles Grodin, but, uh, but then everybody else is sort of somebody who's involved in these questions. Of, uh, Charles Grodin has made this a cause of his, but uh, it is an, e an evening of actors. I just want you to know that. Uh, it's, everybody else is going to be somebody involved somehow or other in some facet uh, of these questions of incarceration, racial disparity in the justice system, and issues of reentry after prison. Uh, and uh, they're looking for sponsorships and Tickets are $100 and can be purchased online at family reentry events at and at the door, or you can call 203-290-0863. And that's all happening on May 6th, which I think is next Wednesday. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with our final segment of The Scramble. Okay, we punish General Petraeus lightly, but people forget the ordeal that Captain Kangaroo went through. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pastel and Sydney Lauro. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Sandy Berger. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton show staff recipes for a Sandy Berger, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Colin talks to Nancy Butler about the church she built and her diagnosis of ALS. Now, back to Colin.
So over the weekend, it became fashionable to refer to the White House Correspondents' Dinner as the nerd prom. But there was another kind of a nerd prom, but it was more exclusive, and it was exciting and French and international and one that you couldn't get into if you begged. You'd have a harder time getting into this nerd prom than you would getting into the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It was uh, 62 philosophers. It was like Conticella or uh, or or Framaru or Lockstock. It was it was a rock concert for philosophers. And one of the people who participated was Susan Schneider, Associate Pro- Professor of Philosophy of Mind, Metaphysics, and Philosophy of Cognitive Science at the University of Connecticut. So a night of philosophy. Um, uh, set the scene for us, Susan Schneider. What was the, First of all, what was it? Explain how this all came together, how it all came together. Well, the French embassy organized it, um, but it was joint with the Ukrainian cultural consulate or something like that. (laughs) And I think they've had them elsewhere. So I know they had one in Paris that was very successful. And so it was huge. I mean, it was really, really crowded. Um, I felt sorry for people. I mean, the line went for three city blocks. It's sort of heartening as a professor that people just couldn't wait to hear philosophy. But I felt so sorry for people who couldn't get in. I mean, they waited for hours. You know, so I got right in because I was a speaker and I was able to get my friends in. And it was full of wonderful speakers. I mean, I got to hear some of my former professors who I really learned a lot from, like Barry Lower and Tim Maudlin. And then my colleagues spoke, which was great. Um, J.C. Beale gave a very accessible talk on logic. And it was great to hear how enthused everybody was about these difficult philosophical topics. And here people came out on a Friday night to celebrate philosophy and hear talks in really difficult terrain. Who was the audience? Who were all those people standing in line trying to get into this IT event? Intelligent New Yorkers. I mean, New Yorkers are great. They're so smart. And I got a lot of people coming up to me after my talk and they seem to be like 30-somethings and 20-somethings who were just there because they love philosophy. It was really cool. I mean, they were asking me to take my picture with them and stuff. It was really cute. <laughs> so you're... The are awesome. I mean, who cares about philosophy? I mean, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not something that you expect there to be a huge gathering with three city blocks full of people trying to get in to, you know, to hear philosophy talks. (laughs) You know, I'm wondering also, not that you're any small potatoes at all, but usually at one of these big rock festivals, you know, there's one act that everybody's going to go see, you know, or everybody wants to get into anyway, whether it's South by Southwest or you go all the way back to No Nukes or you go to Coachella or something like that. There's, is there a Bruce Springsteen of philosophy right now? Was there somebody there that, that everybody was trying to cram into the room that person was in? I can see anything like that. Now, I was mainly at the Ukrainian consulate, so I don't know if there was anything like that going on over at the French embassy. My impression was, like, I got to the French embassy a a bit later in the night, and it was more artsy stuff over there. Like, there was dancing, Mm -hmm. and there was actual, not lectures, but performance art stuff going on over there. So, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, it was more democratic. It wasn't that everybody was trying to see one rock star or anything like that. And and this was philosophy, it was 62 different philosophers, and, and spanning a lot of different sub-disciplines, right? I mean, maybe spanning every different sub-discipline within philosophy these days? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they hit all of them. Mm. I'm trying to remember if history was well represented. And I don't know if I saw anything in ancient philosophy. 
for example. But, I mean, in terms of contemporary philosophy and continental philosophy, that's also contemporary, but there was a good distribution. I mean, it wasn't like just surrounding one particular orientation, like metaphysics. Um, there was stuff on Nietzsche. There was stuff in logic. It was great. And this went on for 12 hours, right, from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m.? <laughs> were you there the whole 12 hours and eating eggs no. uh, on the Lower East Side as the sun came up or something? No. I mean, it was like as soon as my talk ended, I hung out longer, but it was so, so crowded. I mean, I stayed for a few, like a few more hours, but, you know, one problem with such a large event is that it's really hard acoustically to hear the speakers. So, I mean, they were wearing microphones, but it was still really tough, depending upon what part of the room you were in. So, no, I didn't stay all night. I'm not a late-night person. Some of my friends spoke at, like, 5 in the morning. <laughs> you know, like, Pete Mandic spoke on brain uploading at something like 5 in the morning. I'm sure he gave a terrific talk, but I'm unfortunately unable to stay up that late to hear it. Yeah, you're going to give Connecticut a bad name if you can't party with the other philosophers. Susan Why Schneider. party? That was the problem. As soon as I had a couple <laughs> glasses of wine, I wanted to go to sleep. There was a, a fair amount of drinking going on. No, well, there would be. I, well, first of all, I mean, if the French embassy's involved, I mean, there kind of would be. So uh, we need to get into the specifics of your work, too. So one of the things that you've been looking at, and it's actually something that I uh, have been very, very interested in over the last year or so, are questions of consciousness, of artificial intelligence, of uh, brain uploading, as you just mentioned, and specifically, I guess, in terms of this big uh, Woodstock-type event for philosophers, artificial intelligence as it relates to possible extraterrestrial intelligence. That was sort of where you were asked to go in, in your presentation, right? Yeah. And it's some stuff I was recently working on um, at the invitation of NASA. It's been really fun because at the same time that I was thinking about this, a really interesting book on superintelligence came out that's um, Beyond Human Intelligence mm -hmm. by Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom. So I was able to pull Bostrom's work into my thinking about alien intelligence, urging that the most intelligent alien civilizations may in fact be forms of artificial intelligence that in fact smarter than humans in every domain. Part of it is that earthlings are galactic babies. We're actually much younger, according to astrobiologists, than E.T. may be. So, you know, of course, we can only look at current speculation on the issue. We haven't found aliens, but other civilizations could be millions of years older than us. So they would have already reached beyond human intelligence. And so to think about aliens, we need to actually think about how we can understand creatures that are vastly smarter than us and how we would even look for them and whether we should seek them out. Years ago now, we had Paul Davies, uh, whose work I know you're very familiar with, on to talk a little bit about this. One of his points was also that any civilization that solved the travel problem, to you travel such a huge distance to get here within its own lifetime, um, was probably going to be so much more advanced than us than that w they wouldn't really be interested in things that we had to say to them, right? That's exactly right. And in fact, Davies just invited me to England to speak to a group of cosmologists, including Davies and Martin Rees and others. And we are all very interested in this topic. I mean, Davies has a book where he outlines a case for this position. Seth Shostek also holds this position. He's the director of the SETI Institute. It's interesting that a bunch of us have this position. It's still the minority position within astrobiology, but we're sort of drawing from 
the singularity issue that we're experiencing on Earth right now and thinking that, well, we're moving in the direction of computational intelligence, like it or not, and have other cultures out there actually moved in that direction already, bearing in mind that they're vastly older than us, we could actually be encountering artificial intelligence rather than little green men. Right, because that would also be a way to help them solve the this space travel problem too. Would be to be trans Absolutely. trans biological somehow to be you know more more artificial than not than biological. Um, so that that would sort of help them get here. So as you said, uh, they might that might not be that interested in communicating with us. As I think your line was, you don't spend time reading a book to your goldfish, and that's what we would be to them. Right, we would kind of be you know about right, as interesting right. to them as fish are to us. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they'll be very interested in us, and it's not like there'd be a conflict for resources. I mean, they would be very far away from us. So there's a concern right now in the context of the genesis of superintelligence on Earth that superintelligence could be very dangerous and work against humans. Well, they would be right on Earth, the superintelligent AIs. You know, if they're out in space, it's sort of hard to see why they would even be interested in us. So although people are concerned in the context of Earth, I'm not terribly concerned in the context of superintelligence in outer space. But there is a debate going on right now. I don't know if you've heard about the active SETI versus passive SETI debate. Like, for example, Seth Shostak had an opinion piece in the New York Times recently on this issue. So some people actually want to start sending signals into outer space. And Shostak actually suggests sending the entire Internet (laughs) as opposed to just passively listening. So there's this issue coming up right now. And I actually think in light of the fact that these creatures could have an unpredictable shape and be vastly smarter than us, it's probably best that we stay quiet. But Shostak disagrees, even though we agree that the most intelligent civilizations will likely be AI. Well, if they're smart enough to find us, they'll probably find us whether we want to be found or not. Oh, yeah, and it, I don't know that we should call attention to ourselves, though. So. Right. And if they're smart enough to find us, they'll also make their own decision based on our culture, whether we send them the Internet or whether they uh, hack into our Internet. They'll make a decision about whether we're even worthy of their tourism. Uh, oh, like, absolutely. So, based on the contents of our Internet, I'm sure they'll pass. So Susan Schneider, before we went on the air, I established that you haven't seen the movie Ex Machina yet, but it's it's right where we're what we're talking about, and it's kind of an extension. I know that you did write for the New York Times about the movie Her, and this comes up in the movie Her, right? At a certain point, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character, who has become smitten and involved with this artificial intelligence uh, on his you know portable device, he realizes, or she conveys to him in the voice of Scarlett Johansson, that she's just interested in a lot of things that you know, and a lot of people that he couldn't understand, right? I mean, that, that this instead of sort of seeing it as an, as an artificial intelligence coming in from outer space, completely evolved and, and therefore maybe able to make its own unilateral, unilateral decisions about us. In the movie Her, you sort of see this artificial intelligence here on Earth get smarter and smarter and smarter until it really doesn't care about this person that it, quote unquote, cared about even a few days ago. Well, its perspective shifted as it became more and more intelligent and gave us a nice film glimmer of what superintelligence would be like. Because toward the end, I think she became smarter than any human. Mm-hmm. And so technically would be a superintelligent AI. And so that was interesting. I mean, a lot of these films are, the context is against the backdrop of some attractive female, so it's sort of silly. But at another level, they engage with very real and important issues, you know, about 
Android rights, for example, and about understanding creatures that would be vastly smarter than us. So, yeah, I love film. I actually have a book, an anthology called Science Fiction and Philosophy, where I um, include pieces from science fiction and then grapple with a lot of the issues that science fiction raises. Well, it seems also to be a penetrating culture in a lot of different ways. I just got a chance to see through one of those simulcasts, Sir Tom Stoppard's new play, which is called The Hard Problem. And it, which oh, is a, yeah. Yeah, which is a direct reference. I mean, the title obviously is a direct reference to the work of David Chalmers and people like that on the question of consciousness. And, and all of this stuff, I can't wait. We'll have to have another conversation when you've seen Ex Machina, because this movie, which is directed by Alex Garland and uh, stars uh, Oscar, I- Oscar Isaacs and a bunch of other people that you'd probably recognize if you saw them, but but uh, their names aren't super familiar. It has a Nick Bostrom moment that, I mean, it's, it's not spelled out as a Nick Bostrom moment, there, but there's a moment where one of the characters wonders whether he's a simulation, you know, whether he is not actually real. He's been assuming for the entire movie <laughs> cool. that he's real. So that's, you know, yeah. just boilerplate Nick Bostrom. There are philosophical problems that you're very familiar with, with like Mary's room, this whole question of, you know, leaving yeah. a black and white room and, and seeing blue and, you know, what is that? Uh, what is the experience of seeing blue actually? Con- All that stuff is in this movie. So you'll be able to teach oh, an entire wow. course on it. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm, I'll have to go see it tonight. That's great. Yeah, and the simulation stuff is absolutely fascinating. I'm actually teaching that tomorrow to my undergrads. And it does get into the whole question of singularity ultimately too, and, and I won't spoil it though. But of course, you're right. There's, once again, there's a really attractive woman super intelligence involved. That's apparently the only way that we can really think about this. I, I don't know why that well, it is. It gets people watching the movies. It gets people going. You know, but we just have to remember that alien intelligence may look nothing like us. To think that it's going to take a human form is a bit conceited. And similarly for AI, I mean, it may not think like us at all. It may not have human-like emotions. I mean, that really depends upon the context in which superintelligent AI is built. Um, Well, Susan Schneider, it is helpful to be super attractive uh, in a movie about artificial intelligence. It probably is helpful to be super attractive to get past the the velvet rope at the Studio 54-like night of philosophy uh, in which you participated in New York this weekend. So uh, for one weekend, you're as she-she as a philosopher probably can ever get. Uh, Thanks for spending some time post-celebrity moment talking to us. Well, thank you for having me. It was really fun talking with you. The philosophy Greetings, Earthling. Oh, hi. Welcome to Earth. We've got um, we've got beautiful music here, um, animals of all shapes and sizes, and Kardashians. Oh, sorry, uh, wrong planet. <laughs> Kardashians to the rescue, again.